listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Almut. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Good. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright, uh, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You are Almut Rohawanski. If you want to do a Good. complete repronunciation of the whole thing so that they'll uh, know how it's actually pronounced, feel free. I'm Rohawanski. Well, okay. There you go. <laughs> exactly as I said it. Um, okay. So uh, you're a human rights activist. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are Austrian. Are you in Austria now? No, I'm in Maine. You're in Maine? Oh. I'm in Maine. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, you're on the mainland. Um, so uh, you, you're a really, this is going to be an interesting conversation. I'm really looking forward to it because you're somebody I've followed on Twitter for some time. I've been impressed by the acuity of your observations about various things, certainly including some topical issues like Ukraine and Russia. Um, and then it turns out, I discovered on further investigation, you've actually been to these places in the course of your work and you've observed them from a kind of unusual uh, point of view. You want to say a little more about the exact kind of work you do on the ground? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've for about 20 years, I've been what you would call an activist. And what that means is that I've, you know, I dipped my toes into working for the United Nations and uh, the European Union and large foundations. And I didn't. It didn't sit with me. I was surprised to that, um, but I realized I, I I had to find I had to find a way to work at at the you know where the rubber hits the road at the grassroots level and according to my principles or the way that I think should things should be done. And that led me to I mean I'd been sort of interested in the pharmaceutical union ever since I was a teenager and I'd lived there since I was on and off ever since I was a teenager. Uh, but I, I basically started some very pragmatic grassroots, just freelance activist work on certain parts of Russia. That's the North Caucasus in Chechnya. Um, but I also, you know, at times um, then ended up working for in other parts of the former Soviet Union, uh, particularly Ukraine. I mean, the reason I came to work on Ukraine was that after having worked with women's rights activists, particularly in another post-conflict region, that is Chechnya and North Caucasus, um, I think some people sort of liked the work that we were doing there in, in a very sort of isolated, marginalized place. And when the war started in Ukraine, um, they said, look, I'm a, you speak Russian, you've worked with women's rights activists, we're a women's peace organization, do you want to like go to Ukraine for us and do some work there? And I said, yes. But then I tried to replicate this sort of um, now, can I, mean, I interrupt? When you say when yeah. the war started, do you mean in twenty? The first one, two thousand fourteen. Yeah. Okay, so that's when the uh, the separatist uh, Soviet supported Russian supported separatist rebellion in the east uh, yeah. uh, started after Russia had taken Crimea, which in yeah. turn was after the what is variously called the Maidan Revolution and a Western backed coup, depending on your. Yeah, well, we just call it the Maidan. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, so, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but but uh, go ahead. So you went there in, in uh, 2014? Uh, I started, the first time I went was in January 2015, after I'd done some months, you know, remotely, um, uh-huh. advising uh, a women's peace organization. And, um, yeah, and so then for a while, I spent like much of the year there going back and forth. And and one of the enormous sort of privileges, I should say, and advantages was that I could travel all over Ukraine and meet with women. And Ukraine was the country where I really just worked with women. I very rarely even like met any men in my work. It was made it a particularly lovely and interesting experience. Um, With all due respect, with all due respect for men. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you do if you you see you said you found me on Twitter. You'll see like the first word in my Twitter bio says feminist. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, but I mean, just on a serious matter, like this is you know, women's peace building is a thing. Like women, peace and security is has been a distinct form of activism for more than a hundred years. Um, 
and has been recognized for that by the UN in the year 2000 with Security Council Resolution 1325, the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, which centers women in 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 peace and in human security and in, in and in anything the UN and its members should be doing to promote peace and build peace. Now they're mm -hmm. not doing that, but you know it's it's a very it's um it's not just a distinct form of activism, but over the last decades, um, we now have quantitative evidence that the more you involve women in an equal role in building peace, in making communities secure, in overcoming conflict, transforming conflict, the more durable and positive these outcomes are. So like we actually, we've always known this works, but we mm -hmm. now have evidence. Okay. So do you want to uh, describe uh, the specific nature of your activities when you first went to Ukraine? Um, so war was just kind of uh, breaking out. Uh, and well, 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 you tell me, I mean, what did you kind of try to do about it, so to speak? So my job and was my assignment, which was pretty open and which I would have wanted to do anyway, was to find out who the women are who are dealing with the fallout of this armed violence and this conflict in their communities um on near both, the front lines or far from well both sides is a bit of a problem i couldn't go to the other side i was in touch with people on the other side but i couldn't physically go there because it very quickly became um clear that that was not safe for westerners to do there was already in 2015 some American staff of, I think it was the IRC, the International Rescue Committee, got um, taken hostage and kept for some weeks by the separatists. And mm -hmm. so it became clear, like, you could only go there if you went with, like, the OSCE or, like, the UN or something. And okay. that wasn't for me. So I could meet. and But the thing is, these borders were open. People were going back and forth all the time. And I made a point to go to like the crossing points and to meet with the women crossing. There was often more women than men for, is it somewhat safer for them? But also because a lot of the crossing was done by people in pension age to collect the Ukrainian pensions. Mm -hmm. And in that part of the Donbass, men don't live very long. So all the old people are women. Men don't live very long because they've worked in the mines and just in general, in all of the forms of union, men's life expectancy is very low. Huh. So on, in a given day, on an average day of work, uh, you would you would do what? I would um, find out who to talk next. So like who's in that city, who's doing something interesting in that place? What's what what's the issues there? And usually sort of, you sort of get passed around from one activist to another, from one registered NGO to another. Although I always really try to go beyond sort of the uh, like the NGO industrial complex, right? Which is which already had been pretty well established in much of Ukraine. Um, and so sort of to find like new and um, informal forms of activism, but also just really importantly to talk to people who are not, you know, don't run an NGO, don't own an NGO, are not looking for grants, just ordinary people trying to live their lives. So I would try to find ways to like have a meeting with the entire teachers collective in the frontline city, or I would those women pensioners who are crossing to collect their Ukrainian pensions, they were staying in these really cheap hostels because the trip was so arduous, you couldn't do it in one day, so they had to spend the night. So one day, a friend of mine, we literally just bought a bunch of like nice food, like caviar, which is not such a big thing there, but caviar, chocolates, cake, champagne. And just in that hostel, we just set out as friends that like, come here and sit with us. Because, you know, these are women who've, for years not been able to eat anything afford anything like this and just like invited them just for a social gathering and just like listen to them and like not even you don't want to ask too probing questions and especially questions that are loaded and leading like and and often um like i had other assignments when like some of my um my employers would give me very specific questions to ask like please describe the experience of sexual violence of women in your community as a result of the war and they were like Stop asking us these stupid questions. I want to talk to you about my pension. And so um, really open question, like what's going on? Mm -hmm. How do you see this? How has your life been affected? And just record the stories and try to, um, to pour that into a description of the real nature of the conflict and the real impact of the conflict and recommendations on how to uh, for those actors, you know, this is 
Western actors, Western governments, Western international organizations, uh, international organizations, how to how to adapt the programs or design the programs or just generally how to do this work. Mm -hmm. um, now, they generally don't listen, um, but you try. So to some extent, were you trying to better understand the roots of the conflict yourself yeah. or more the impact of the conflict on people or both? Both. Absolutely both. I mean, I had look I you know, having worked and studied with conflict affected communities, one of the first things, if you do the work, like how you're supposed to do it, you always ask open questions, you have an open mind and you listen, you really listen. Um, and, um, you know, having studied the politics and, and sort of, you know, uh, diversities of the former Soviet Union without calling it ethnic, because it's not really ethnic, it's a political thing in Ukraine. I understood that there would be many layers of different stories that would mm -hmm. differ and approximately what they would likely be. And so I just wanted to test it out and just really hear it. And it was extremely revealing. Um, and uh, yeah, and then to just describe the story, tell the story in, in ways that would make sense for those international <clears throat> actors who, who could or should or said they wanted to do something about it to make it better. And so what what did you learn about the roots of the conflict that especially things you might not have understood just watching it from afar, but but in general, what was your kind of diagnosis? Um, well, there are obviously lots of, there are several conflicts going on at the same time. And, mm -hmm. and one of them is sort of the, the, you know, geopolitical, if you will, contest between Russia and the West and Ukraine being in the middle of that um, with its very pronounced agency, obviously. Um, and another one is sort of uh, the transformation of these societies into new states and new bodies politic um, in the past 30 years. And who are the winners and the losers of this and what it takes for people to be a winner or to consider themselves a winner and how people are designated losers and pushed to the margins. Um, and also, like, I think the biggest sort of one liner about how this conflict and everything that came for it was experienced differently by people on the ground was that from the get-go, from the Maidan and then from the new government and the conflict starting, there was an immediate sort of shift to extreme austerity and neoliberalism. Uh, and in part that was because Ukraine was going bankrupt and was sort of on the edge of default all this time and had to get loans and the conditions are that. But let's just say there are few countries in the world that as enthusiastically embraced these austerity conditions as post-Maidan Ukraine. And and, um, and just to give you two examples, so when I, on my first trip early 2015, you know, I really asked like, how does this conflict, the armed violence affect you? And he's like, look, armed violence is all good and fine, but let's talk about our pensions. Let's talk about the fact that my grandmother now gets, I don't know, it was then like 50 euros a month and her mm -hmm. meds alone cost that. One family told me, we use our income to buy my grandmother's meds And because she's already half blind, she can't lead, read the list of uh, receipt from the pharmacy. So she doesn't know that her entire pension would go to it, but she still doesn't trust us. Um, and you heard this kind of thing on both sides of the conflict? Now, on the other side of the line, it was a bit different because- well, on Which the, side so of the line did you hear that on? This is, it, is on the Ukrainian side. This is okay. all on the Ukrainian side. Now, on the, on the separatist controlled side is that um, there was certainly a hope and an expectation that people would be that these communities would be absorbed into so in into Russia and would thus benefit from Russian level pensions and welfare payments, which are mm -hmm. many times higher than Ukraine because Russia has a higher GDP per capita. It, Russia is also an austerity country, if you will, like it and has long been. Um, but even so, between the higher GDP per capita, um, there's you know pensions are higher, and in Crimea that's what happened. Like Crimea was annexed and illegally, but like one of the first things was like people's pensions went right up. Mm -hmm. uh, and under the separatists, it was this shadow existence. And instead of making these people there like a true offer and like trying to truly sort of like win them over and welcome them, because the communities on the other side of the line, the Donbass communities were very split. Um, not everybody, by far not everybody that was happy with the separatists takeover and their program. Um, and a lot of people, like one and a half million or so, left and 
became internally displaced in the rest of Ukraine. Um, and then there were many more who couldn't leave, but you know, who still really didn't like it there. Were, were the um, I know you you you. It sounds like you think the ethnic the quote ethnic dimension is sometimes overstated, but were the people who uh, came to who went west over the line from the separatist held area? Did they tend to be non-native Russian speakers, or was there really not that much of a correlation? That's it's almost it is. This is not primordial. This is about politics and how you define. This is about choices you make, and right. often, and often, I've also worked in other parts of the world where this is not the case. Where like you're pretty much stuck with your identity, and you can't like choose sides in a conflict according to your politics. But this was about politics, and often it was families breaking apart, children, adult children leaving their parents wives leaving their husbands um uh men were by some margin happier with the separatist agenda than women um and why is that because it's a bunch of guys in uniforms with guns with socially conservative ideas you know short version um the modernity and, and i mean the maidan and it's sort of like this dream of like Europe, which is a very fuzzy dream, right? Like the, the actual stepping stones to there are far from clear and were even less clearer then. But it offers this vision, this dream of sort of a happy, well, safe, modern modernity, you know, where everything functions and where none of the humiliations and indignities and hardships and stress of the post-Soviet transition uh, are they anymore? And, and the now, thing is, if you're, you're saying that you, that Ukraine uh, seemed to offer that dream to people who went to west to Ukraine today. Yeah, because yeah. it was okay. because of the okay. Maidan. Because the Maidan was right. very much seen as sort of like this like yellow brick road in that direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it was. I mean, it was. No, go ahead. I mean, a lot of people went out in the Maidan. Like even if you say the word EU membership, like they don't have they don't have a very clear grasp of what that means and what that implies and how you get there. But it is a vision and it is a dream and it is somewhat more promising if you're a woman than if you're like a conservative man, I guess. Um, but I shouldn't overplay it. I mean, it was certainly an age thing. Like older people um, were more likely to sort of stay there and and share some of the ideas of the separatists. Mm -hmm. uh, and and that's also because older people always like this, like, you know, they're less likely to flee because they're so attached to like right. their plot of land, right? Their place, their home. Um, but it was also because it wasn't that they have uh, old fashioned, authoritarian, hopeless, broken ideas and are just no good for today's democracy. It's more like today's democracy as it was being presented the vision of the future in Ukraine didn't have a place for them. It didn't respect them. It didn't treasure them. It didn't cherish them. And it just basically stopped paying them pensions that they could actually survive on. So that's that's a pretty big signal. If you tell old and generation of old people, here's enough for you to like starve to death with, and that's it. Like you don't feel particularly appreciated. But it was so more than that. It was also like their entire lives, their most productive years during the Soviet period had been presented as a mistake as a crime, as something you should be not be proud of, but be ashamed of, mm -hmm. something that disqualified you from being a normal human being, like a, an equal normal human being. At that time, there were politicians in Ukraine and like the post-Maidan Ukraine were, you know, openly and loudly proposing that people above a certain age, 60, 65, should no longer be allowed to vote anymore because they vote wrong. Mm. And, and, so and, that, and that meant, and that meant, uh, that meant Russian? That that meant no. That meant old. You said they they did what wrong because they did what wrong. They vote wrong. They vote they wrong. Vote wrong. I, I they vote they for they the wrong, wrong. They have the okay. wrong ideas. They uh, they do it wrongly because they yeah. were like they wrote for the wrong parties, the wrong politicians. They have the wrong ideas. Okay. Um, there's just something wrong about them. They're broken, spoiled, corrupted by the fact that they had like they lived the prime of their lives during the Soviet period. Um, even though that's, you know, by 2015, that is no longer true because we're 25 years into post-Soviet period and um, most of the prime of their lives actually happened during that period. But just because they became adults during the Soviet yeah. period, they're like, now, did, I, uh, did I understand you correctly that for some people in the Donbass, there was a kind of irony, which is that they would have liked to have become part of the Russian 
welfare system, like absorption into Russia would have what they found appealing, but they weren't that happy with the separatists who uh, the, supposedly. The yeah, the Russian Russian was never an offer for them. Well, they certainly hoped for it, I think, in the beginning. But the Russian state made it pretty clear that it was completely fine with these regions living this shadow existence, lawless, mm -hmm. with an unclear government, with no democracy, and without the benefit of Russian laws and the Russian welfare system. Mm -hmm. So, and and I'm I'm saying the Russian welfare system such as it is, is nothing to write home about. It's just, it's something, right? And like, but that wasn't an offer for them. Mm -hmm. And so over the years, slowly, slowly, like some sort of pensions were created for them, but they were also still forced, if they were physically able to, to once a month cross the border, like the administer the front line um, and collect the Ukrainian pensions, which was really hard and dangerous. And um, so they were, abandoned by both mm -hmm. sides and that was i thought was one of the big stories that there's a contingent of people who because of their age their cultural preferences um maybe the language to speak but that is almost like not even the most important issue right but more like their cultural preferences the way to think about um the past of their country and their society um the way they envision its future they were written off and and considered undesirables and mm -hmm. there was just no place for them in this new post-maidan ukraine no equal happy respected place but there was also like the separatists also offered you know no happy comfortable safe alternative welfare system the failure to integrate it into the russian law and russian welfare systems is one thing but uh, Russia also allowed sort of minor oligarchs and separatists to plunder the industries and mining of that part of the Donbass and just basically like play these existing companies and lay everybody off. And um, not long before the war started, the second, the big war, as my friends in Ukraine call it, the big war started, there were massive strikes by people in separatist controlled um, Donbass areas. And that was really hard because like, as I said, this is a lawless sort of shadow place and you don't have functioning labor protections or anything. So that was really dangerous for them to do, but basically their companies had been sold to some shady Russian oligarchs. The equipment had been sold to other parts of the former Soviet Union. They were unemployed, there was no support. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe just in case there's anybody listening who isn't conversant in the basics of how Ukraine got to this point, we should say that, of course, you know, leading up to there had been uh, before in, in 2013 in particular, I guess, these protests over the issue to some extent of Ukraine's uh, moving toward the EU. It wasn't going to be a full-fledged membership, but it was some kind of associate status. Russia was very much against that. Uh, at that point, Ukraine had a democratically elected uh, leader who wound up siding with Russia on the issue after various inducements from uh, Putin. Uh, and then, and, and so the kind of pro-Western protesters in in Ukraine, and I'm gonna give you a chance to correct me and refine this after I say, cause I'm sure you know more than I do, but uh, my understanding is that um, then, uh, you know, the protests heated up, it ultimately became uh, violent and the president uh, fled. Uh, the, the president who's sometimes called pro-Russian, which may be an oversimplification. But anyway, the democratically elected president fled. And so the government uh, was now firmly in the hands of what you could call pro-Western, pro pro-EU uh, forces. Um, and what, what would you add or subtract from that account? What would I add and subtract is that the Maidan was a very diverse event. Um, there was the whole gamut of political views present there and the violent elements were far-right nationalists. Um, but I know leftist progressive queer feminists who were on the Maidan, mm -hmm. who were standing in the barricades and they were livid because the, like, the men with their like makeshift you know, gear and barricades were telling them go into the tent and make me a sandwich. I mean, this really happened. Mm -hmm. um, so there were a lot of really progressive social elements there too and they wanted that to be about them as well and it was sort of taken away from them 
Um, there were also other groups that were sort of like the like the um, aspirational winners of the post-Soviet transition, like people with small businesses, people who could just about afford a car, like Ukraine has had then and probably still has the lowest per capita car ownership in Europe. So owning a car is actually like sets you apart. And so there were all these groups and it was about, and then soon after it also became a thing about choosing side. Like once the Maidan side had won, I could see going to all these communities and towns in Southern and Eastern Ukraine, that there were people sitting in rooms with me, like they all came together, like 20, 30 people. And some of them in 2013, 2014 had chosen to put themselves on the side of the winners. They didn't necessarily share a lot of their ideas or ideology, but because they chose to put themselves on the side of the winners, that meant they could feel better than everybody else, speak mm -hmm. loudly, say denigrating things about the others, and the others couldn't talk back. And you could see the others were sort of sitting there, like looking at the floor, being uncomfortable. Like it just, you know, it, it was a, a thing about choosing sides and choosing winning sides, um, like in all such situations. Now about what brought people out in the Madan in the first place, the EU association agreement, it wasn't just that Russia didn't want it, Russia didn't want it, but it was also, it was a terrible deal mm -hmm. um, in that it would have forced Ukraine to for, forego well, first of all, and this is, you know, this is was documented, the German magazine, the Spiegel wrote about it in great detail at the time, how the Ukrainian government went to um, the EU Enlargement Commissioner, Stefan Fühle at the time, and told him, look, like if we sign this and if we commit to the conditions of this association agreement, we need so many billion dollars or we will go bankrupt. Um, and he says, like, yeah, doesn't interest us. Angela Merkel at the time says, when this was brought to her, he says, well, I feel like, you know, like I was presented to a wedding and they're presented with a bill. Like I didn't, I didn't mm -hmm. hear about this before. And um, the Yanukovych government also says, look, you know, according to your association agreement, we may have to stop all trade with Russia. And then, you know, entire industries in our country will disappear and vanish and go bankrupt. This could happen. And the enlargement commissioner, Stefan Fuhle, says, yeah, but like, you know, an earthquake could also happen. Like it was totally mm. none of their concern. No. They put in front of them, in front of Ukraine, um, an impossible zero sum deal. Right. And, and, and we have, and the deindustrialization of Ukraine actually has, it then started. Like the moment the association agreement went into force, 2015 16. You see a rapid decline in uh, heavy industrial output, and now that, like, was that because uh, the deal compelled Ukraine to, in some sense, reduce the strength of their economic ties to Russia. Well, yes, because it was no longer possible for them to, like, you know, have full trade with Russia. But more importantly, because one of the conditions of the deal was that they had to open um, their public spending to tenders from the West. Mm. And so they could no longer, and so like most countries around the world have a thing, it's called localization, right? So you say like, oh, we want to like open our tenders to, you know, all sorts of countries because we want competition, right? We want to have the best deal for our taxpayers' money, but we also want to protect our industries. So 20, 30, 40% typically of the tenders that we award for large infrastructure spending have to go to our domestic industries. And Ukraine wanted to do that too. This is like two years after the Maidan, like 2015-16 period. And basically, the, the the minute they announced that the EU head of the delegation was, you know, standing in I don't know, the Parliament, the President's office is like no, and they had to open their their tenders to um, not the whole world, but all like the EU and like Western countries. Mm -hmm. And their industries didn't prove to be competitive under these conditions. And so, for example, Ukraine ordered, remember there was a while ago, there was a, a helicopter accident in Ukraine where a bunch of like senior officials died in a helicopter accident. Mm -hmm. That was a French helicopter that was bought under one of those Western mm. tenders where they couldn't buy their own. And, you know, like in, in Ukraine, in, in the East, not the separatist controlled Donbass, but in the East, like Saporizhia, there are actually these uh, big heavy industries that make anything from a space rocket to like a school bus, like, right. And those 
obviously depend on public tenders because you know the private sector doesn't usually buy helicopters and train cars right, right. and so that's one of the reasons why there was this large deindustrialization i mean that seems like incredibly short-sighted for the eu to i mean given given the relative economic status of ukraine compared to the average european union state and what presumably was the aspiration to bring ukraine closer to the economic level of the Western states, it seems to me kind of uh, uh, short-sighted and or selfish not to let them, you know, have these kinds of local local production deals you're talking about. You know, when you say that it seems short-sighted, then that sort of implies that you assume that normally they would be far-sighted and check all the boxes and do and do all the numbers and and look at everything and make you know informed wise decisions but they don't i mean it's you know it's 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 day-to-day -day politics it's lobbying from their industry we should totally mm -hmm. not underestimate the influence that lobbies have in brussels right when it comes to questions like this mm -hmm. um so so yeah i mean you know the assumption that they make wise just informed data-based decisions just you know doesn't hold out now now on the issue of uh the fact that the eu agreement compelled uh russia uh compelled ukraine to basically abandon its existing uh trade agreement with russia um do i recall correctly that angela merkel or somebody made some noises about trying to come up with some kind of compromise where you could make it win-win from and, and and sustain some of the these economic ties uh, with Russia because obviously if you don't you're going to turn Russia into an enemy of this whole process which is what happened which uh and if that hadn't happened we might not have a war today there was there not some kind of initiative from the german side or uh... i mean these discussions were certainly had and like they happened um, and the reporting on it is spotty. And obviously now that it once again became so much more relevant as we're trying to like walk back what actually happened, all the steps, now the reporting becomes also sensitive. So like, you know, people are trying to, you know, cover, you know, what make themselves look good for what they did back then. So I don't really know and I wasn't present, but certainly these ideas, these arguments were out there. Um, and it's also like the, the association agreement doesn't have a line that it says you must no longer trade with Russia. Obviously, trade with Russia continued afterwards. Uh, for example, right. Ukraine's um, president, first president after Maidan Poroshenko, he, until not all that long ago, kept all his factories in Russia and like mm -hmm. had some of his production there and like imported it elsewhere. So. It's also always a question of like who gets to do the trade and who benefits from right. it, right? Um, but I and, can and I should, say this. I, should... I can I think what's interesting here is that not long after this, long not long after the Maidan, the question came up whether Armenia, which was also um, in line for an association agreement um, mm -hmm. and what's called a deep and free, a deep and comprehensive free trade agreement, DCFTA, um, and and Armenia said, look, like we cannot compromise our trade links with Russia, the most important trading partner, never mind, you know, the security environment that we find ourselves in. We mm -hmm. can't do that. And the EU said, you know what, you're right, fine. Let's find a way for a compromise. And Armenia got a very different sort of trade agreement that allows it to maintain its trade links with Russia. And we're like, there's nothing in the agreement where you could later sort of construe barriers out of it. So the EU can learn from its huh. mistakes, sort of. Uh, but it also committed a huge mistake there. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know what the exact terms were uh, at all of of what Ukraine was uh, was being offered by the EU. I mean, I know that ultimately the logic behind a trade block is that you do all agree on a common tariff policy toward countries outside of it, right? The, that that's <laughs> part. That's the flip side of there being preferential uh tariffs within the within the, the thing so so ultimately you know this was going to raise uh problems but i remember at the time of the maidan revolution stephen cohen whom i'm sure you know of this american mm -hmm. uh he's no longer alive uh expert on russia um i heard him on the radio raising this issue and explaining that you know 
uh, Ukraine was having to choose between EU and Russian uh, economic ties in a certain sense, and nobody was trying to work out a compromise. I didn't hear anything about that in the entire uh, rest of the Western media landscape. It just wasn't being discussed. It was just all about democracy versus autocracy kind of, you know, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. Um, and 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 I'm uh, I, I'm wondering, uh, I mean, you should feel free to say anything about that that you want. I'm also, well, go ahead. Do you have anything to, any, anything to say about that before my next question? I mean, you know, these are very complex and complicated things that happened at the time. And obviously the EU back then traded with Russia as a block. Uh, in uh -huh. some countries more than others. And even now the EU trades with Russia, um, although to a much less ex lesser extent. So, but the question is, what is what is the trade agreement? What do we trade with? And the thing to understand about the specifics of Ukrainian trade with Russia is that some of its most um, value added products that it was trading with Russia were literally components of things that were produced in Russia and vice versa. So like, I don't know, a mm -hmm. uh, rotor blade for a certain machine would be produced in Ukraine and then traded with Russia and they've been doing this for many years and like built something together. So the existing at the time um, trade agreements between the EU and Russia probably didn't look at things like this, but different things because EU industries are obviously not integrated to such an extent with Russian industries. Mm -hmm. So that's the one size fits all thing about this is the problem. Okay. Now, if you're if you're Germany or Holland or even Spain um, or Poland, and you're an EU member and a fairly powerful one, you have the political heft, the lobbying power, and indeed the under the EU treaties, the decision making power to achieve decisions that are good for you that will help you. If you're an associated country, you don't have that because you're not a member. Mm -hmm. So. Uh can I ask you back back to the Maidan revolution? You mentioned that in addition to uh, you know a somewhat diverse group of kind of you know peaceful protesters, there were more militant and in some cases armed uh, people from the nationalist right in Ukraine. Now, in in the kind of uh, narratives about what happened there, the kind of there's the conventional American narrative. It is basically. Uh, you know, uh, thuggish government troops fire on uh, innocent protesters and uh, trouble starts uh, on the on the more on the left for you might hear, especially the far left, almost the opposite. Like it was the uh, the na the nationalists with guns who started uh, the trouble. Do you have a view on the relative apportionment of kind of blame, so to speak, about the revolution I turning am, violent? I wasn't there. And I'm not a researcher in these facts. And I consume what you've described. Like I read these things, I follow these debates, I follow the controversy. Um, I, but I'm not the person to ask, like, you know, I have nothing to add here besides what mm -hmm. others have written and said about it. Uh, what I do want to say, like to me, what's, what's to me is much more interesting is like, this was a genuine and very broad based popular movement and the people who participated in it had their own goals and their own dreams and their own visions, and they were often diametrically opposed to each other. And um, in the end, it was captured by those elements who just had, you know, either who were totally willing to use actual physical violence or who had pre-existing political networks um, that sort of captured it. Um, but I can tell you, it was certainly not my, you know, queer feminist, <laughs> grassroots right. activist friends who, like, you know, came out um, having but, much greater say but, in Ukraine's politics afterwards. But in a certain sense, my impression was that those kinds of uh, groups did have a place in the new regime, if only because, if you want to be cynical about it, the new regime uh, wants to endear itself yeah. to the liberal West, right? And so it it wants to present itself as in contrast to Russia and very much in contrast to the way Vladimir Putin talks. Um, it is it, it welcomes, you know, gay people, trans people and so on. Am I wrong about that? I think this is a slightly reduced view ex post facto, like looking at it from 2022, you could say that. But I was present for years. For years, my friends, the feminist friends and the queer friends were trying to organize these pride parades for like 2015, 2016. And every year they had to do these massive like self-defense preparations because the police wouldn't help them. The police might 
help their attackers. It took years of grassroots activism to also exert pressure on the government to grudgingly change its position. And yes, it's true that some political actors in Ukraine do, you know, this kind of pinkwashing now. But this didn't come overnight and it didn't come only because like, you know, one EU diplomat said one thing, like it took a long time. And certainly, you know, like when a, a Ukrainian politician does, you know, pinkwashing and becomes, you know, queer friendly, they also pay a price for it politically because there are also many elements in Ukrainian society that will not approve of that. So uh, this is a process that took time and... Mm -hmm. Like my friends and I, we always talk a lot about sort of like how much can be, how much is due to foreign influence and pressure. And also very importantly, like, is it, is it really a good thing if like feminist or queer or other progressive activists sort of think of Western diplomats as their main allies and try to change their society always through this like, like excursion through Brussels or, you know, through, through some embassies. I'm actually not of that opinion. I think it's actually a really harmful thing, like a, a big part of my activism, the things I learned from doing all this work is that like, you need to, you need, you need to fight your battles. You need to have those struggles in your societies, with your societies. There, there are no shortcuts. And certainly like, you know, some EU diplomat from Denmark isn't, you know, isn't going to fix these things for you. That said, um, certainly there is, you know, you can sort of tactically use some of that and um ukrainian politicians are clever and um good at finding out which side the bread is buttered on um like they they understand what it takes mm -hmm. um and and that's it like after the night maidan there really was sort of a refreshment of the political scene the average age of, of deputies and, and ministers is very young and has been um and so it is a different generation now and some of the generation are ultra right and like you know, have Nazi tattoos and, 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 you know, writing and things are, with are runes in them, the, but. Are they the ones that the, the demonstrators, the, let's call them pink demonstrators, had to fear uh, violence from? You, the, you, the violence you mentioned earlier that, that where they weren't getting the police protection, was that coming from the nationalist right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Uh -huh. So like when, when, um, when uh, the like pride in Kiev and Kharkiv and all these cities, the preparation for it months, I remember, was all about self-defense. This is like in the early post-Maidan years. And of course they analyzed like who is going to attack us. And certainly they get a lot of um, attack from like the Orthodox church, both the Ukrainian and the Russian, by the way, like, you know, whatever. That's um, but let's say those people are not gonna go like, full-on violent, like the actual like physical violence, the real threat comes from sort of the ultra-right. And, and the ultra-right in Ukraine for the longest time sort of made the LGBT community like their main target. Um, that said, uh, they also targeted like Roma communities very much. Um, uh -huh. But the Roma marginalized vulnerable community in the LGBT community in Ukraine at least has well-connected, well-networked, um, well-established and pretty strong structures too. So they're not all vulnerable. There are also some people with resources and connections and influence. And is it your sense that the nationalist right continues to have a strong, well, let's go back to when you were there. Was it your sense that they had a strong influence on Ukrainian policy, including uh, with respect to the Donbass. And uh, I mean, for example, there was, as you know, there was at one point uh, these Minsk Accords, the Minsk Agreement, which people hoped was going to resolve the, the the tension between the, the separatists uh, and the rest of Ukraine. They didn't go anywhere. Uh, and I know on the Russian side, at least, they blame Ukraine for not delivering on that. Was the Ukrainian government at that point uh, under the strong, under some influence from the nationalist right on that issue? Yes and no. Because yes, because yes, that influence happened. There was pressure not to go. If there were again and again, sort of like demonstrations, you know, in, in the center of Kiev, right outside government buildings, you know, like holding up gallows and stuff and saying like, this is what we'll do you, to you if you implement that. And they pulled back, but let's just say, it wasn't like they really wanted to implement it. 
right? Like there was, I think maybe Zelensky early on in his role, he seemed genuine about it. Like back then, I really, I bought it, um, that he really wanted to do that. Uh, but for most of these years, there was no great desire. Like it was very easy to persuade them not to do it. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah. So that's that's how I would characterize it. Um, I mean, what you call like the right in Ukraine is a really diverse bunch. Like some of them are sort of like old-fashioned, old-school ethno-nationalists um, who are really focused on like language policy and folklore culture and would find all this like Nazi stuff and the runes and all of that and the Azov stuff really weird. Um, but let's say the the like uh, the ultra-right neo-Nazi militant Azov corner has more influence through violence, whereas the, I mean, it's just very roughly speaking, because it's all very complicated, but they're like sort of old school ethno-nationalist language and culture focused, uh, like you would call it, maybe like, you know, that also like endorse Bandera. They have more clout in policymaking for like policies that actually affect people's lives, especially education, publishing, things like that. So you're saying there are there there are ethno nationalists who support Bandera, who was this World War II era figure who collaborated with the Nazis and is complicit. In well, 19- yeah, I mean that's that's not even that's not a secret. I mean, yeah. you may remember there's a major controversy involving no, the but, former. No, uh, let me. Uh, what I was going to say, just to be clear, the rest of the question is going to be: Are you saying there's kinds of there's some some people who fit that description who aren't on board with the violent part of the nationalist right, or I misunderstood. Well, they may be on board with it. They may totally like it, but like they're not they're different people. It's they're not different their people. Tool. So like it's not I mean, just like if you if you if your hero is some people from like the 1930s, you know, who was a fascist. If you're really into like ethnic embroidery and painting Easter eggs and folklore culture and language and learning, you know, peasant poetry and 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 all that, you're a very different person from when you're some guy who's first something is actually probably Russian, because like the Azov crowd actually recruited very much in the Russian speaking corner of the country, you know, was tattooed all over, including with Nazi stuff, who like has a weird sort of like Valhalla and Nordic gods thing going on. Um, and you know, who may in his past have beaten up queer people and Roma in the streets. Right. Those are two different crowds. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, that that's interesting. I, I mean, and you know what? Yeah. Probably we need to split this whole spectrum up into like more than just two crowds. Like there's a lot more going on. But and again, there are people who are much more qualified to speak about that particular who have studied these groups. Right. Um, I just had to work on like what they what they meant to the people that I was working with and 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 like the things yeah. that we were trying to achieve in the country. But it, it speaks to the issue of. Uh, it raises the issue of, of like, what exactly is Ukrainian nationalism? On the Russian side, a lot of people want to almost deny its existence as an authentic thing. And of course, this is common in conflicts. Uh, you know, you see this with Israel-Palestine. These aren't really one people and so on. Uh, but um, what is, and it sounds like you would say, well, Ukrainian nationalism, like a lot of nationalisms, is a complicated thing. There are uh, very ardent nationalists who want to preserve Ukrainian culture and so on, but aren't carrying around guns. And then it sounds, ironically, I hadn't really come to terms with this before, when you said that a lot of the violent so-called nationalists have recruited heavily from kind of Russian or native Russian-speaking populations, it hadn't, it, it hadn't like dawned on me that maybe uh, for some of these hardcore nationalists, ethnicity per se, in a certain sense, isn't a big deal, right? I mean, I mean, do you see what I'm saying? It's like in the West, you know, I mean, there are various levels of understanding of this conflict uh, in the West. And of course, the first level is just good guys, liberal Democrats against bad guys, repressive autocrats. And then the next level down of understanding is to understand that there is, in some sense, an ethnic component to this. There were these uh, laws that were uh that targeted the russian language in some sense and were resented by some native uh speakers of russian um but now you're taking us to a a, a third level where things are getting more complicated uh, I mean, 
yeah. Ethnic, all of these things that you're talking about are already constructs, right? Mm -hmm. We know that. I mean, you know, peasants into Frenchmen and all of that. Um, What makes Ukraine different is that these processes are taking place right in front of our eyes and have been taking place in a more recent period than in other Western or uh, other European countries were. But now so far in the past that we think that these nations are primordial and these, these things have all been cleared up and settled. And in, in, in Ukraine, they're not, but like ethnic and see, ethnic is a problematic term in Ukraine. Um, native language is a problematic term in part because of how it, it's translated into Russian and Ukrainian in that it implies that this is the language that you were born with and that designates your ethnicity when it's really just like a practical language that your parents happen to be speaking. Maybe, you know, your grandparents switched to it. Maybe your family is mixed, but so very often, like there have been lots of studies about this issue in Ukraine and in other post-Soviet communities. And the question is always like, what is your native language? And they say, whatever, Belarusian. Mm-hmm. What language do you speak at home? Oh, Russian. You know, like the mm-hmm. native language and the language that you actually use the most and speak the best may be two different things. Mm-hmm. Let me let me There's- put the question. I, uh, after right after the Maidan Revolution, there was an uh, some. Uh, law that was perceived as an anti-Russian language law that I think ultimately was not signed into law, but it was passed and then not whatever. It, it was not signed into law, but it was uh, perceived by at least some uh, Russian speakers as an affront and a and, and a bad sign about what the post-revolutionary world was going to uh, be like. Where did the support within Ukrainian politics for that law that wound up being like vetoed or something or not enacted, where did that, where would you say that came from? Was Did that have support from the armed militant nationalist right or more from what you would call the kind of Easter egg painting uh, nationalists? With the caveat that there are Easter egg painting progressive feminists, right? And there are. <laughs> And who who draw progressive, inclusive pride and inspiration from Ukrainian tradition and uh-huh. everyday folk life. Um, with that caveat, I would say it came from sort of the fuddy duddy old school ethno-nationalist corner. Not the, and it not, was the, of, not the more militant, not the more violent. No, 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 militant. no, no. Like they're yeah. not they're not interested in that sort of thing. Um mm-hmm. We, I'm not, it's not entirely clear what policies they're actually interested in. And I have a friend who's a much greater expert on this, who's literally written a book about it. And he and I, we sometimes chat about how it's so weird that in Western and, Rus- and Russian coverage, we obsess over the tattoos they wear and the patches they have and, you know, the sun will that and the like twisty swastika that and this. And 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 I always feel like, you know, patches and symbols are actually important. What's important is what kind of policies would these people actually enact if they were in charge? Uh-huh. Like, would they go on full, full on racist and fascist? We don't know because right now we're, it's still we're still mostly seeing the fact that they are fighting in the war and that they wear a lot of patches. And we know that they've like weird sort of like uh, like pagan ideas and stuff, but we don't really know about their politics very much. Um, they also came not out of an intellectual tradition so much as like they started out as like football hooligan, soccer hooligan mm-hmm. groups. Or one of them, was it C34, C something? They even, even into the war on their social media, they advertised themselves as goons for hire. Uh-huh. Like you could hire this ultra right group. So, like if you had like a business conflict with somebody, right? right? And they would go and beat someone up. This is, you know, this is their origin. So their ideology is far from clear about those Russians because like it came out of that old school ethno-nationalist corner. It was something that clearly they'd had in their in their drawers and that had they peddled before again and again. But I just to me, what's interesting is like, what is the effect that it has on people? So let me tell you a story that I think makes it very clear. A a friend of mine, a very uh, former businesswoman who because of the war and she's herself from the Donbass, uh, although the Ukrainian uh, controlled was then and now Ukrainian control part because of the Maidan and 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 the first armed conflict, uh, she became an activist. She gave up her successful business, became an activist, a very successful activist to mobilize many and help thousands of people. 
And so she fled her hometown to a town that was controlled by Ukraine. She gave everything up, her business, her home, uh, became an activist to support um, her her vision of a modern, progressive European, if you, whatever that implies, Ukraine. Uh, but she's also from that region, and her first language, the language that they speak at home, is Russian. Now, her last name is Ukrainian, so by ethnicity, her native language may be Ukrainian, but her actual language in her family is Russian. Mm-hmm. So she's done all of this. She's sacrificed for for Ukraine. She's a mover and shaker. She helps people. She helps keep her community together. And then, but she also has three children. Her st- children study in Russia. Her children who've just been displaced, lost their home. And all of a sudden, her children start coming home from co- schools crying because the teacher, the math teacher, is now obliged to teach math in Ukrainian. And the kids don't speak Ukrainian. And the teacher doesn't really speak Ukrainian. And it's incredibly hard. And for this incredibly busy, hardworking woman, you know, like who organizes school food and shoes and clothes for displaced people, for people affected by conflict, she now has to deal with this. Mm-hmm. And she experiences this as like, my government is making life hard for me and is marginalizing me and is punishing me. Why? This is These are the stories that I was trying to find. And these are the people that I'm interested in. And these are the policies we have to think about. Like, what does this do to people? How does it make people feel about the country? And like, um, you know, about how welcome and equal and loved and wanted they feel in that community, Uh right? And there's so many stories like that. So like these these policies when they're enacted and and i think like some of the people who come up with these policies who who enact them they actually like the fact that they will create feelings of humiliation and marginalization in certain groups because they feel that they and their parents and their grandparents were subjected to that before the other way around Mm -hmm. and so like now now they should feel like this but like that's you know do you build a happy country like that Okay. The country so, that's at peace with itself, that it's not at peace with others is almost a separate question from that. But I'm interested in like, what does it make, you know, what does peace mean? And this is also like the feminist approach to peace is about what does it take for people to feel safe? Yeah, I, that's a good question. Um, I had somebody on once who was talking about a feminist approach to foreign policy. Um, and I, I don't think I, I, I ever developed a super clear understanding of. I'm sure different people mean different things by it. But this is this yeah, is what yes. uh, this is what uh, what you would say is it's very kind of um, microscopic uh, in the sense of looking at the impact of war on individual people's lives. But then it's people centered. I think how is peace meaningful if people aren't safe and don't feel safe and secure? And it means nothing. And so you see the roots of many wars actually beginning in some sense with people not feeling that. Yeah. Now, I want to say in Ukraine, there's also there's another dimension to it, the geopolitical mm-hmm. one. Um, in theory, geopolitical conflict could start without people being subjected to these humiliations and threats and violence in their lives. Um, in practice, the two usually go hand in hand de facto, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, when the US got involved in Vietnam for a clearly geopolitical reason, there was already a long history of colonialism and violence there. Right. So um, listen, it's, uh, we've been talking an hour, uh, as regular listeners and viewers know, uh, what we often do is uh, the first hour is a public podcast, uh, then we uh, talk a little more in a kind of overtime uh, segment, uh, and that's available to paid subscribers to the Non-Zero Newsletter, which I encourage everyone to become, and which it's easy to become if you Google Non-Zero and Substack or just click the link um, in the show notes in your podcast app. And uh, and and after that, you can set up uh, a special podcast feed that'll give you access to all the bonus content. Anyway, uh, I'll move, you've been kind enough to agree to stay a little longer uh and so uh as we uh i think uh, as we head into the uh overtime segment i'm gonna uh, 
pick up a little, uh, sustain that theme a little of kind of U- Ukraine as uh, caught in this uh, geopolitical struggle. And I want to I want to ask you a, n- a number of other follow up questions uh, uh, based on what you've already uh, told us. Before we do that, I want to give you a chance to say anything you might want to say that you make sure is part of the public podcast uh, by way of clarification or wrapping up or anything. And also tell people where they can find your stuff. Now, your Twitter feed, I I, uh, I highly recommend. And yes, I do still call it Twitter and probably will forever. Um, uh, now, that what what is your actual Twitter handle? Um, is it your I name? I my last name, actually. Yeah. R-O-C-H-O-W-A-E. And as in Nancy S K I, um, yep. and uh, is there any place else people should go to? I mean, here's the thing. So for the longest time, I very, very rarely published anything because the work I was, because you know, if I'd want to publish something, it would be about the things that I know best, which was my work. And my work was working with was in places where it could be dangerous for the people I was working with. If if you know. Mm-hmm. Their work became public, um, but also because you know I was just busy doing things like implementing programs. Um, I later decided that that was probably not so good, and I started a blog. And, and I do occasionally publish a few things. Like in the last two years, I've published a bit more, but just here and there, on like open democracy. Um, and so people can just Google me because like I am the only person with that name in the world, so you can't <laughs> miss it. Um, yeah, there is. A, so you can find my blog on my Twitter. Bio. OK, well, thank you. So I encourage everybody to follow you. And with that, uh, we will uh, head into overtime. 